Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 28. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So we're going to be exploring this passage uh, today from Romans 8, and we're going to be exploring the role of the Holy Spirit in suffering. If you want to have the passage open, it might help you uh, either grab one of the red Bibles from the front of the balcony or the back of the downstairs, or get your little Bible app open. It's Romans 8, 14 to 28. A few years ago, John, my husband, and I uh, were on a skiing holiday, and we read in a a guidebook about this particular restaurant that had been recommended right at the top of the mountain. And so uh, one day, we thought, oh, well, we must try this restaurant. So we found it on the ski map, and it looked like it was at the top of this particular chairlift. And we worked out that if we skied hard for a couple of hours, uh, we would get to this restaurant for lunchtime. We thought, great, like a challenge, and off we set. Anyway, after a couple of hours, we did indeed reach the top of the chairlift. 
And according to the map, the chairlift was like there and the restaurant was right next to it. So we got off the chairlift, looked around, no restaurant. There was like a mountain in front of us uh, and then just white everywhere because it was snowing because we were skiing. And, um, but we could not see this restaurant anywhere. And so um, we sort of, there are corners on mountains. And so we sort of went around this way on our skis, like going like that, um, for about, you know, look around the corner, no restaurant, went the other way. Uh, this is me skiing. Uh, looked around uh, the other corner, no restaurant at all. And we were like, where on earth? is this restaurant? It's got all these amazing reviews. Uh, we've got to find it. Anyway, and then uh, we nearly gave up. And then we noticed the chairlift bit was there. There was a little sign, like an arrow, just on the side of the mountain over there. And it was literally an arrow that was pointing upwards. And it said restaurant in French. Restaurant? Something like that. <laughs> They're going to rib me about that all week. Anyway, so we decided, come on, we're going to go for it. We've come this far, we're going to head up the mountain. Now, if you've uh, been skiing, you'll know that unless you've got cross-country skis on, you cannot walk uphill wearing skis. So off the skis came, flung them over our shoulders. They're very heavy, very awkward, and started trekking up this mountain. We couldn't even see the top at this point. And you'll also know that if you've been skiing, uh, ski boots are not designed to walk in, let alone designed to walk uphill in. They're designed to attach you to the skis and also designed to prevent your ankles from breaking when you fall over. So the ski boots started chafing into the front of my shins as I was walking up the mountain. I was carrying these heavy uh, skis over my shoulders. And after about 10 minutes, I thought, this was a cold day. I'm now absolutely sweltering. The sun had come out. I was wearing all my padded ski gear with my ski boots on and skis over my shoulders. And I said to John, my husband, who was with me, I was like, what are we doing? This is completely ridiculous. This, in fact, this hurts going up this mountain. What is the point? Now, if you've met John, my teacher, he's a very practical, uh, my husband, he's a very practical man. <laughs> he's not here this morning. He would have loved that. Um, <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, he is a teacher, and he is my husband, and he's a geography teacher, so he's used to, like, rallying 15-year-olds to enjoy geography and to trek up mountains and look at geographical formations. And so he said, come on, just keep going. It's going to be worth it. Come on, you can do it. And I was like, yeah, but we don't even know where this flipping restaurant is as we trudged up this mountain, and we trekked on. My arms were burning, my legs were hurting, my shins were bleeding, and then eventually, we got there. We literally summited the mountain. I felt like I'd climbed Everest, I'll tell you. And there before me was a hut. Literally, a shack. And I thought, is that it? Is that what all this pain and all this suffering that I've just been through was for? A hut, a shack on the top of a mountain. And as I stumbled towards it, you know, poles flying everywhere, skis dropping, we sort of rounded the side of this hut. And I suddenly realized what all the fuss was about. 
This hut, this restaurant, it was just a hut, was sat on the ridge of a mountain. And as we got to the other side of it, we could see to one side the whole, well, it wasn't the whole, but a lot of the Italian Alps spread out before us. It was the most stunning view. And then behind us, from where we'd just been, we turned around, and there was the French Alps behind us. We were in a French resort. It was like we were perched on top of the world. It was the most incredible view. And that path up the mountain was not an easy one, especially carrying skis and wearing ski boots. But it was worth it for that incredible view that we got at the top and also the steak that we got from the restaurant, which was basically mooing. <laughs> this passage in Romans 8, it reminds us of the journey that we take through life, and it reminds us that that journey is sometimes tough. In fact, not just for us as individuals, but the whole of creation, Paul describes, is subject to frustration. Paul says that the whole of creation is in bondage to decay that it's groaning as in the pain of childbirth. And it really does feel like that, doesn't it? For us personally sometimes, but also as we look at the destruction of creation. And our Christian journey isn't always easy either, is it? We might have hassle for our faith. We might have had broken relationships because we follow Jesus. But what we and the whole of creation experience in the present is just a prelude to the glory and the joy that we're promised. Look at this verse, uh, verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. It actually says for us in the Greek, not in us. That will be revealed for us. And so there is hope. There is hope uh, that even for some of us today, as we sit here thinking, I'm really struggling, as Dave was just speaking about. For some of us today who were struggling up that mountain, thinking, we're never going to get there. Even if every part of us is hurting, Paul is reminding us here that as Christians, we have this hope, this hope that we've been singing about already this morning, that in the present and in the future, there is something that we're given that will blow our minds. It's the hope not just of a good view, but it's the certain hope of the restoration of our bodies and our souls, and in fact, the whole of creation. And it will be better and it will be more glorious and more incredible than anything that we've ever experienced. So that's the big picture that Paul paints in this passage in Romans 8. That's the top of the mountain. That's the end of the race. That's the hope that will keep us going. That is the promise to all who believe and trust in Jesus. This passage is all about the good and glorious news of resurrection and restoration and renewal at the end times. But what about the present? Well, Paul has a lot to say about that too. And the reality is that we are here and we are now and life is sometimes tough. 
Many of us at some time or other have had to walk up a steep and challenging path in our lives. And we might get weighed down while we're doing that. Some of us get weighed down just by the brokenness of the world that we live in today. We're brought low sometimes by the destruction of our planet or the injustice that we see around us. We experience the loss of somebody close to us, the pain of a broken relationship, the hidden battle that we're facing with depression, or the pain and the despair as you face the unknown of a health diagnosis, or that ongoing struggle with loneliness. And that path can bring us to despair. It can make us want to give up or even lead us to the point of losing our faith. Because why are we still suffering when God has meant to have won the victory on the cross? Why are we still suffering when we believe in a God who heals? And sometimes our own experience of suffering can make us conclude two things. A, our faith is lacking. There's something wrong with me and my faith. Or B, God actually doesn't care. Let's just take a couple of moments to explore these two views. My faith is lacking. This view takes hold when we believe that if you are a Christian, God is going to stop all suffering for you. And it goes something like this. I am a Christian. Uh, I know that I am God's child and he loves me. In fact, he loves me so much that he sent Jesus, his son, to die on a cross for me. And I know that suffering is not part of God's plan. And in fact, he hates suffering and he wants to end suffering. And so if I go to him and I pray and I trust him, he will end my suffering. He will heal me. All I need to do now is to claim that healing that I know God has brought for me. And there is truth, so much truth in that belief. God does love us unconditionally. He does hate suffering. He can and he does heal. And he has a plan to end suffering for all time. But he doesn't promise to heal us all now. In fact, in Romans 8 verse 23, Paul reminds us that we all groan inwardly, waiting eagerly for our adoption and the redemption of our bodies. We all groan inwardly, don't we? You see, we're in this in-between time between the cross and the resurrection of Jesus and the victory that Jesus won on the cross. And the end time when he promises that he will return and he will make a new heaven and a new earth and there will be no more sickness or dying or pain or grief. When God will bring to completion everything he has begun. And Jesus himself never promised an easy, suffering, free life for those of us who believe and trust in him. In fact, he says uh, that you will, we will need to take up our cross daily and follow him. And carrying that cross is sometimes hard. And so the problem comes 
if we believe teaching that Jesus promises that he will always bring an end to our suffering. He will always heal now. Because what happens if that doesn't happen? What happens when we look at the suffering of this world and it's still going on? Our confidence in the power of God is seriously undermined, isn't it? Because we think, why hasn't Jesus done this for me? What is wrong with me? What is it about my faith that is lacking? And so ultimately, it undermines our whole confidence in God. And don't misunderstand here, we can pray for anything. We can pray for a baby. We can pray for healing. We can pray for financial help. Uh, We can pray for world peace. We can pray for the leaders of our nations. We can pray for a restoration of a relationship. And God can give us those things. But we need to trust in God's bigger plans and promises that he can and he will, but he doesn't always bring us those things in our timing. And the second view that we can sometimes get stuck on is that God doesn't really care. God doesn't really care. We find ourselves struggling in some way, and we might say to God, but haven't you seen me? I've done everything for you. I've come to this church or another church. I've helped in children's ministry. I've served the coffee. I've brought people to church and they've become Christians. I've prayed and I've read my Bible every day. Uh, I've been on your side and I've kept my side of the deal. So why haven't you kept yours? I have said all those things to God. And so we then conclude maybe God doesn't really love me. Or maybe I have misunderstood and God cannot actually do those things that I have expected of him. Maybe God doesn't care. Maybe God isn't as good as I always thought he was. And our confidence in God is undermined again. And we forget that the Bible again makes it clear that we will face suffering Here in Romans 8, verse 17, it's almost a given. Suffering is not a glitch in God's perfect plan, but a necessary part of being a Christian. Paul says we get to share in Christ's suffering and in his glory. We get to share in his suffering and his glory. But it's also clear in Scripture that God cares enough to come alongside. And he comes alongside us in the person of the Holy Spirit to be there, to comfort, to lead us, to fill us, to empower us, to comfort us through the good and the difficult times of life. I remember clearly uh, the night when my stepdad, Aylmer, uh, died suddenly of a heart attack, aged 57, whilst on holiday in France with my mum and my brother and his wife. And those sorts of life-changing moments, whether it's a death or a diagnosis or even a baby being born, can feel like someone has lifted you from one life and dumped you into a completely different experience of life. 
And it can feel really scary, can't it? And feel, it can feel like your whole life is out of control. And that night when I got that phone call to say that Ilma had died made me feel like that. But into the chaos of that situation and all those feelings, uh, some of my friends stepped in. As soon as I put down the phone from France, um, and I just found out that my stepdad had died, uh, in true English fashion, I was bought a cup of tea, actually by Lucy Harley Mason's dad in that moment. And I was given a big hug. And then someone else came uh, to me and, and took me home and, and we sat together and we chatted and they listened to me and then they literally put me to bed. And then I remember that same friend just sat at the side of my bed uh, watching me go to sleep. It was a bit freaky, but it was also quite comfortable. Someone else then, the next morning, had taken the day off work and uh, they drove me from the Midlands uh, to Manchester to meet my mum off the plane from France. And then they drove us both to Yorkshire. And the presence of those friends in those first couple of days, they didn't change the situation that I found myself in. They didn't bring my stepdad back to life. They didn't take the sadness away. God doesn't take away our suffering in the way or in the timing we might want him to. But he does give us the Holy Spirit to be our comforter by being always present, by bringing safety into the chaos and the fear. He gives us hope He's our comfort. So let's just look at a couple of those things. Let's explore this a little bit more. The spirit comforts by being present. In the Old Testament, the, the children of Israel, uh, as we know, they're, after the Exodus, they're wandering around in the desert uh, for about 40 years, uh, and they're often in despair, they're often moaning, they're often feeling hopeless and at the end of themselves. And so God gives them two signs of his constant presence with them. By day, he gives them the pillar of cloud, and by night, the pillar of fire. And those are the, uh, the reminder to the people of Israel that whatever they face, wherever they go, whatever stumbling blocks they come about, God was saying, I am present with you. I am present with you. I will be your guide and I will comfort you. And then in Acts 2, Pentecost, we were celebrating that last week, um, we're reminded that for all of us who are children of God, we all have the personal presence of God with us. The Holy Spirit is given to each of us to comfort us and to lead us through. Verse 14 of Romans 8 says this, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And those of us who are children of God are led by the Spirit of God. Not long ago, I was uh, struggling with something in my family, and it felt like I was in a really difficult place. But in the midst of the moments of despair, the Holy Spirit spoke to me really clearly and just reminded me of his presence with me. He reminded me once quite profoundly that he had the situation that I was struggling with. I knew the Holy Spirit's presence with me 
And that brought me such comfort during those times. The spirit comforts by being present. And the spirit comforts us by bringing us, by leading us to safety. The other day, I was talking to Alice, who's my 12-year-old, and we were chatting about what she wants to do with her life, uh, and she declared that she didn't want to do anything with her life that required her to go to university. And I went, oh, okay, that's, that's fine. You don't have to go to university. Any particular reason uh, that you don't want to go to university? And she basically said, I don't want to go to university because I don't want to have to take the exams that you have to do at university. And I was sort of saying, well, I don't think you really need to worry about that, love. You know, you're 12. You've got quite a lot to, to go through first. And maybe we'll just concentrate on the first set of exams you've got to do rather than the university exams that you might have coming up in 10 years' time. Uh, but I also really identified with her because at her age, I was petrified of exams. And in fact, I carried on being scared of exams when I took exams at 16 and 18 and 21 and 25. I was still scared of those exams. At 21, I remember feeling fearful about the future and what the future might hold. At 25, I feared being alone. That was mainly because all my friends were getting married super young. Ridiculous. Anyway, <laughs> I'm only joking. Um, at 29, I feared uh, the doctors discovering that my unborn baby would be born with a life-altering disability that had run through our whole family. And that was only a 14-year period of my life, even before I actually had any children. And then the fear really started. You know, I had to keep them alive on a daily basis. Um, I, I feared screwing up their lives by everything that I do or don't do, or, or making a good decisions for them, making good decisions for them as parents. Fear can just be part of our everyday, can't it? And when we're suffering, there's so much more to fear. Fear of being out of control. Fear, fear that what you're experiencing now will never end. Fear of the pain. Fear of being alone. Fear that you won't cope. Or fear of what will happen to that person that you love. And so it's not difficult for us to see how we can become slaves to fear, which is what this passage describes. We can become slaves to fear. It can control us. It can become, if you like, our master. And I was pondering this week about what fear is and what the opposite of fear is. And I think the opposite of fear is safety. When our children were little, um, I've always worked full-time and my husband has worked part-time uh, when they were little. And when they were uh, super little, they would sit on the floor uh, and they were cute some of the time. And, um, and they would sit on the floor and they would reach out their arms to John and they would call to him, Dada, Dada. And in that moment, John would come and pick them up and he would lift them up and he would draw them to himself and he would comfort them, and he would make them feel safe, and he would carry them. Paul describes here in this passage 
that the Spirit leads us away from fear to safety. And it's the safety that comes from being a child of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves to fear so that you live in fear again. Because remember, slavery is always based on a relationship of fear. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. You are safe because you are the chosen child of the Heavenly Father, the God who we get the privilege of calling Abba, Father, Daddy. And he comes and he lifts us and he carries us through the difficult times. So we don't need to fear so that we can know that comfort, so that we can be safe. And lastly, the Spirit comforts us by helping us. So often uh, when we are suffering, we haven't got a clue what to do, humanly speaking let alone what to pray for. It all can just seem so overwhelming and massive. But but there is good news. The Spirit who is present, He knows what we need. He understands our pain. Verse 26 of our passage says this, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He comes alongside us. He's present. He brings safety. He knows what we need. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit intercedes for us through wordless groans. The Spirit helps us in the helplessness of our present situation by coming alongside, by being present with us, by interceding, that's praying on behalf of us to the Father God. I cannot tell you the number of times uh, that I have come to God and found myself uh, praying something like this. God, I am here. I have not a clue what's going on. I do not know what to pray for in this situation or for this person. Uh, I don't know uh, what to say. But God, I know that you are in charge, and so I pray that you will bring comfort, and I pray that you will bring peace, and I pray that you will bring healing. And your will be done. Because in that, those moments, there's nothing that I can say. There is nothing that I can do. But the Spirit comforts. He helps. He comes alongside. We need to trust in God's sovereignty. And so I love this passage in Romans 8. It just confronts the reality of the struggles that many of us go through head on. But it also takes us to the top of the mountain. And it makes us look at the view. It makes us see again the treasure that God has laid out before us in the person of Jesus Christ. It reminds us of the glory that we're promised and the joy that we are to receive and the hope that we have in Jesus. John and I enjoyed that steak at the top of the mountain. And we enjoyed the view as we sat there eating it. We could see then what all the fuss was about. And then we put our skis on and we skied down the mountain. But then the next day, we did it all again. We got to the top of the chairlift. We saw the sign. We took our skis off. We climbed up that mountain again. But the second time, it was a lot sweeter. Because this time we knew 
what it was all about.